I did lose a sheet of my notes, but that's okay. We're going to go forward. So, so I think I'm a decent parent. I've only lost one child out of three. Now, I shared this about 10 years ago. We had a little incident in my family's life from probably 18 years ago when uh, we went to a vacation with my family down at the ocean. And, uh, oh, I think we found the guilty party. <laughs> that little piece will help me on my quotes. Thank you, Keith. I wonder if there's something in that. So we were, down at the vaca- we were down at the beach, at the ocean. Carol goes down to the beach and sits in sand. She's getting some rest and relaxation. I'm supposed to be watching Tommy, and Tommy just kind of wanders away. And um, he did. He just wandered away. And when it was discovered that he was not here, there was this mad panic. Uh, my father and two brothers and myself, and we scrambled to find him. And um, the next thing I did was really stupid. Um, But I I went and found Carol on the beach, and I asked her if she knew where Tommy was. (laughs) That was, I mean, she levitated off the ground. Her hair went straight out, and it took about three people to pull her off me. And uh, I mean, I, I still, I look, I was thinking about this, thinking, what was I thinking? But... I was in a panic. We got the police involved. Anyways, it turned out that Tommy just wandered down to the shore, walked along the beach. Some parent, probably better than I was, saw the child, picked him up, brought him to the lifeguard, and then the police notified the lifeguards we were looking for a child, and they found him. And so the intensity of the search was matched with this intensity of rejoicing, rejoicing that we had found this child that we loved. And the intensity was driven by the fact that he was our son. We loved him. We love him. It was incredible. I I was in the doghouse about two weeks after that, but we were really excited. And and the passage we're going to read is just a little glimpse of that, of the heart of God that is searching and striving toward us and then rejoicing when we're found. And it's really a model of actually how we're to minister to each other. You know, we've been in Matthew 18 now, and this whole discourse is about how we live together in the kingdom. What does it mean to live with other Christians in the kingdom? What did our look like? I mean, that's what he's trying to teach us here. And so Jesus has instructed us that humility before God and each other is a mark of the kingdom, but also this idea of not putting stumbling blocks in the way of others is a mark of the kingdom. And then here we come to this passage about pursuing and loving for the spiritual development of others. That's part of the mark of living in the kingdom. And Jesus, what he's going to do is he's going to give us one command. The whole passage only contains one command. It's a serious command. And then he takes this example of God in the parable of the lost sheep in 12 to 14, and he shows how that is going to fuel our love. So in other words, we're going to get a picture of God's great love for us And we're going to be so overwhelmed and so filled with joy that we will want to move towards those who are quite different than us. So turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 10, and we'll read just, uh, sorry, Matthew 18, verses 10 to 14. Matthew 18, 10 to 14. Read this with me, if you will, please. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? 
If a man has a hundred sheep and one has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the other ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Okay, this, there's a lot there. Let's just look first. Jesus is calling us to care for one another. It's the first point. It's a clear point. He calls us to care for one another. You see that right in verse 10. It says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. It's a negative here. It's a negative command. He's saying in the positive, care, but he's saying it for the purposes of emphasis in the negative. Don't despise these little ones. Now, when you hear the word despise, I want you to think contempt. I want you to think to look down upon. I want you to think to look your nose down at someone. It's a pride, it's a pride and arrogance. I'm somehow better than them because I'm different than them. The word actually literally means to think down on. To think down on these little ones. Who are these little ones? Well, we've already seen in verse 6 of the same chapter, these little ones believe in Jesus. They're Christians. Or you look in verse 14, these little ones are going to be protected by the Father that they're not going to perish. These are Christians. These little ones have turned and become like children. These little ones here have seen that they've got nothing for God. They've repented. They've converted. They see that they need God. They see that they need a saving deliverance. They know they can never muster up enough to God, so they've appealed to him for just mercy and grace. That's what these little ones are. And so, But the little ones are more than that, aren't they? We've been finding in this whole chapter that it's a reference to children, and we've seen the characteristics of children are often what? They're whiny, they're difficult, they're weak, they tend to be insignificant. These children bring little to the table, but they often demand much. They aren't developed, they aren't mature, they're not sophisticated, they're not very educated. And so let's put it together when he says, see that you do not despise these little ones, he's saying don't look down on those people. Let me give you some pictures of them. You know the people that may... They're very opinionated. They're Christians, but they just love to tell you what they think. And they're so confident in their opinion, it just drives you away from them. Or perhaps they're a person that just, they just talk about themselves all the time. I mean, you get up to them and, and you think they must be breathing through their ears because they don't stop to breathe. Or perhaps it's the people that are theologically undeveloped. They say things and they, they hold to certain truths about the church or about God or about salvation that are really quite undeveloped. Or, 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 they're, or they're the type that may come up and they just have the tendency to come, on, come in harsh. They've got to say something harsh and hard. It's like they can't help it. They, they just <clears throat> you cringe when you say it. These people we tend to look down upon. Jesus is saying clearly, see that you do not despise. They may be unattractive, undeveloped, in their personality. They may be uneducated. They may speak in a way that is not proper. Proper English. Maybe they've got a little salt in their language. He says, see that you do not despise them, these little ones. Humble yourself. And here's why. Look in the next half of that verse. He says, for I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, when I read that, let me, take a, let me take a short sidebar here. A lot of people look at this verse and they say, that's why I believe in guardian angels. 
the guardian angel idea is that God appoints an angel uh, for every person that will watch over and care for them. And you often hear that, I was almost in a car accident, my guardian angel saved me. And a lot is given to the guardian angel as they've delivered this person or that person. I'm not, I'm not saying without any sort of doubt in my mind that there are no guardian angels. I don't know. I, I don't think this verse, though, proves it. I would just say that. The guardian angels, we think of as them guarding us, but we see these angels are in heaven before the face of God always, never leaving the face of God. So they're not running around doing our business necessarily for us. Um, The Bible doesn't say anything about guardian angels. It does say that angels are representative over nations in Daniel 10 and 12. It does say that angels are representative over churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And it does, thankfully, say in Hebrews chapter 1 that angels are sent to minister to those who will inherit salvation collectively, that God has angels seeking to serve his people to advance them in his purposes. So angels do that. But but the guardian, this idea of a one-to-one relationship, we don't see in Scripture. But what Jesus is saying here is don't despise these little ones because these little ones, they have angels too. I mean, they're part of the group that the angels are ministering to. God has so valued them that they are part of the bigger group of his people that God has created angels to serve us, to advance us in the purposes of God, that they have representation before the face of God just like you do. So don't look down on them. Now, I think we struggle with this. I think it's difficult for us to care for one another. I mean, where do you struggle here? I mean, do you tend to scrutinize people before you speak with them? Do you tend to evaluate them as to whether they're the type of person you'd like to be with or speak to or spend time with? There's many ways that we can look down on people. We can keep them at arm's distance and not let them draw into our life. We can speak negatively about them to others. Uh, We can just write off their opinion as if they've got nothing to say to us. When they come up with an idea, we can discount it before they finish their sentence. We can be indifferent to their needs, physical or spiritual. Um, yeah, we can basically treat them with indifference. They're not of help to me in what I'm doing. And so I'm acting in a way that's looking down to them. This is really what... Uh, This is really the way the world handles it, I think. I mean, the world tends to evaluate based on performance and beauty and success and effectiveness. And when you measure up, you're good. And you have plenty of attention and plenty of time. But when you begin to falter and not measure up, you don't have enough intelligence, you don't have enough wisdom, you don't have enough position, enough power, then you're kind of excluded. You all know that. We've all felt the sting, whether it's not being picked first, second, or third, but maybe last or second to last on a a football game or... Perhaps, oh, your girlfriend's had a party, but you didn't make that list. And so we've all felt the sting of that. The church handles life differently in the kingdom. We value people based upon them being in Christ. That Christ has redeemed them, he's saved them, he's put his name upon them. And that is what gives value to them. That they share a redemption with us. They share a heritage with us. They share a reconciliation with a father with us. That when we look at people who are different than us, particularly those that we tend to look down upon, that they're like us in Christ. 
That's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.16, he says this. He says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. In other words, Paul's not going to evaluate people in the church according to these external measurements that the world or your, or your annual review will evaluate by. That we're going to look at them differently. He goes on to say, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We see them differently. Now they're Christ. Christ has said, but I love them, and they are mine. And if Christ says that, then they are mine to us as well. John Calvin wrote on this passage, he said these words. He's the reformer of the 16th century. In Geneva, he says, By his own example, Christ now exhorts us to honor our weak and lowly brethren, for he descended from heaven to be their redeemer, to save them. And it is unworthy to reject in our pride those for whom the Son of God did so much, for they are not to be assessed according to their own virtues, but according to the grace of God. That's how we value people. So when he says, therefore, do not despise one of these little ones. Folks, the ground is level at the cross. We don't want to look down. We want to value them because Christ has placed his name upon them. But how do we do this? This is the challenge. I think, <clears throat> I know that you're convicted with me. I, I, I know the weight of this because we all have people's names in our minds right now. And they may be against each other. But how do we, how do we move beyond this? How do we leave conviction to conversion? How can God's word inform our lives? How, how can it begin to transform the way we behave? Well, look with me at this parable just briefly. And I just want to do, <clears throat> explain to you briefly that you know, this parable of the lost sheep is found in two places in Scripture. One is in the Gospel of Luke. One is in the Gospel of Matthew. In the Gospel of Luke, the context is different. The Sadducees and the Pharisees are castigating Jesus for having the audacity to relate to and share the gospel with tax collectors and prostitutes. He should have nothing to do with them. And so he teaches this parable about the sheep that strays, and he goes over the hills and the fields, and he gets it and brings it back and rejoices over it. And he's teaching and really rebuking these scribes and saying, you are not imitating your Father in heaven, who searches after the lost. These tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners, he's died for them. He wants to receive them to himself for his glory. And so he rebukes them. In our context, though, it's different. He's speaking to the disciples. And he's speaking about the little ones who are believers. So he's really talking to the church about the church. And those people who tend to wander away from us. Who tend to move into areas that they shouldn't be moving. These little ones that we tend to despise. That's who he's talking about. And so he teaches this parable. He says, listen, he says, what do you think? So he's gathering the attention of the disciples, which I imagine he had to do quite often. What do you think about this? Gathers their, their attention and says, okay, a man has 100 sheep, one of them goes away. Would he not leave the 99 in the mountains to go search for that sheep? Now, I don't want you thinking he doesn't care about the 99 who are persevering in the faith. That's not the case at all. He's trying to, for emphasis purposes, show the value of even just one who wanders. Just one. He will, he will leave the 99 just for the one. It shows the heart of God. It shows his compassion, his willingness to suffer, his knowledge that one did leave. You've got 100 bleeding sheep out there, easy to lose one, not to God. 
He knows everyone. One strays, and he knows it. And he sacrifices himself. You can imagine the shepherd going through the rocky crags at night, perhaps exposing himself to the danger of other thieves or other animals, going through inclement weather just for the one. He goes after it, searches it. And everybody who would have heard this parable, they would have known he was speaking about God. Why? Well, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Or Isaiah 40, 11. We read, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. This is God. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So God is a shepherd. But let me read to you from Ezekiel 34. This speaks to the mercy of God that I think Jesus is trying to help us to see how incredibly gracious God is that we might imitate and reflect him. In Ezekiel 34, he writes, For this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock, when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they're scattered. I will search for the lost. I'll bring back the strays. I'll bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. I will save my flock. Can you hear God saying that? But how does he do it? Well, if we were to keep reading in Ezekiel, we'd find out. He says this in just a few verses later. He says, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. Now, the irony is that David had died 400 years before. Who's the servant? Well, it's the son of David. They, when Ezekiel was prophesying this, they knew it wasn't David. They were saying, well, it must be a son of David. So then does it surprise us when Matthew begins his whole gospel with what? Jesus is whom? He's the son of David. He is the one. He's the shepherd that's going to come. He's the one that's going to tend the flock of God. And that's why in John chapter 10, 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I will lay down my life for the sheep. So you see, Jesus takes this mantle of being the shepherd of the people. He searches, and he dies for us. He takes upon himself all of the sins and all the things that make us so despisable. He took them upon himself. And this is what Isaiah had encouraged us before, that we all like sheep have gone astray, and each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's why you have the picture of the shepherd carrying the sheep. That Jesus has come and borne the wrath of God, and he's borne the justice of God over our sin. He's borne the anger of God as he takes upon himself our sin to save us. Both the cleaned up version of the Christians, but also the ones that we tend to look down upon. Philip Melanchthon was a name you don't hear often. He was a a collaborator with Luther in the Reformation, did much to systematize the writings in the 16th century, and he wrote this about it. He said, Interwoven in this text, there is a sweet significance of the passion of Christ. He He places us on his shoulders, the sheeps that he has found. He transfers to himself the burden of us. Jesus is saying that the God of heaven, from whom all bow and worship, who sets stars in place, has come down and is seeking what has been lost. That's what, that's what Jesus has done for us. But he doesn't just search for us to find us. Look, he rejoices for us. Look in verse 13, he finds it. Truly I say he rejoices it over more than the 99. 
Now, again, I don't want you to think there's a comparative thing here, that the person who's persevering in the faith, that God somehow is less impressed than this delivered one that had been lost. No, I think he's just drawing an emphasis that God is happy. See, Satan will put in your mind that as a Christian, if you wander too many times, God's going to finally say, enough is enough, I'm tired of it. I don't want you coming back until you've changed your life, until you finally put it behind you. You go over in the corner and you figure it out and then you can come back. That's not what we find here. He, he, he rejoices. He's the one that's searched. He's the one that's found us. He's the one that's saved us. And he rejoices over finding us. Look at how he sums it up. This shows you the heart of God in kind of summary form in verse 14 when he says, it's not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now, I want you to see this clearly. I want you to look at this. A lot of people see this verse and see, see God is going to save every single soul that's been lost. It's not saying that. This isn't proclaiming a universal salvation. He's saying this, that it is not the will of my Father that one of these little ones, these little ones are believers. They're faulting, they're halting, they're struggling. They may be, you may tend to look down upon them, but one of these little ones, not one of them will I lose. This is incredibly encouraging news that God is assuring to us the security of our salvation. He has entrusted Jesus Christ the responsibility to make sure that we are saved. Do you know that apart from Jesus Christ, you will fall away? Every one of you in here, I will fall away apart from Christ. Apart from the promise that we see Jesus say in John chapter 6, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing, no one of all that he has given me, but I will raise it all up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What encouragement that he will assure even these wounded, despised ones will move into glory. Now, if you're here uh, and you're interested in the things of Christianity, maybe you're not a Christian, but you're interested in these things, and you've often thought, well, I can't come to God until I get my life cleaned up. I can't come until I'm, I'm ready to fix this problem and this problem and this problem. And, and you hesitate coming to God in any form of repentance because you just don't think you're ready. He's ready to receive you. I hope this challenges that thought. I hope that you would see God is more than willing. He does, you know, while we were dead in transgressions and sins, he has saved us. He has not waited for us to become partially clean. But he has taken us to himself in the midst of it. So if this is you, if you have hesitated in that way, then I encourage you to come forward after the service or even in the time of silence after the sermon and repent and come to God just as you are, repenting of your sins, acknowledging your need for him. But, but for the Christian here, you want to follow but, but how does this really work out in your life? Well, let me just give you a, a couple thoughts about how we're to love and care for one another, because that's what he's really commanding us to do. Number one, for the Christian, I would say you need to acknowledge your propensity to wander. You have to acknowledge that you have a tendency to slide away from him. If, take heed lest you fall. You know those, those who are so certain of themselves, there is a propensity. We just sang about it in Come Thou Found. 
You know, we sang, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That is us. That is all of us. We are all tempted to wander. And folks, when I speak about wandering, I don't mean you dive headlong into pornography or alcoholism or drug abuse. I'm not talking about that. We, we wander over busyness. You know, perhaps you're in the midst of parenting, and parenting is high-demand time. Or perhaps you're in the height of your career, and it's demanding you 60, 70 hours a week. Or, or perhaps it's the busyness of, of just finishing school or having to get the grade or having to get the mark. That busyness can just lead to a wandering. Or, or not just busyness, but kind of a spiritual ADHD, kind of a distractedness. We're, we're a wired world now, and, and, and that phone's buzzing all the time. And so you're trying to read your Bible, your phone buzzes. Boy, you've got to know who that is. It could really be somebody important. Maybe the president's calling you or somebody really important. And so you've got you've to figure out who that is as opposed to turning it off. And they may just have to wait for 30 minutes. And, and, and we're distracted and we wander because we cannot, we cannot keep our minds contemplating an idea for more than a few seconds. And that really, really is going to work against us but not just that. You can also wander over frustration. Some of you have been in difficult situations for a long time, and it's very hard to see God as good when he hasn't delivered you from what you've asked him to deliver you from. And there's a frustration, and there's a tend of, well, he doesn't care, and your heart begins to wander. Or perhaps it's the allure and the temptation of this world. You know, God promises some great things, folks, but they're a long way off, it seems. And these things that I can get right now, they're really pleasurable, and they're really immediate. And so our hearts tend to wander. And you know when your hearts wander. John Bunyan kind of gave this list of, here's some markers when you know that your heart begins to wander. Uh, number one, you stop thinking about God as much. You just don't think about him. It's not mean-spirited. You're not intentionally. You just happen, yeah, I don't really think about him. You, you don't necessarily enjoy the company of the saints like you once did. Uh, Sunday morning is, is more of a difficult experience for you than perhaps before. Uh, you begin to play a little bit with some secret sins. You allow them a bigger place in your life without repentance. You begin to find faults in other Christians rather easily without finding the same in your own life. I mean, all, th- these are just markers. Y- your heart begins to harden. And, and so I would say acknowledge your propensity to wonder and repent. Guard your hearts. Ponder the idea that you cannot be saved apart from Christ's constant sustaining grace in your life. Ponder that idea. Repent quickly when you're convicted. Don't make excuses while you're wandering. Just say, I am wandering. You know what I am. I'm just wandering, and I need God to save me. So let's acknowledge that. But then secondly, begin to actively care for people. Those people that you're not naturally drawn to, move with prayer for them. Move with prayer for them and move in action. Perhaps invite them into your home. Open up your life for them. I I know this is difficult. Many of us, we see our homes as our fortresses and and we really are hard-pressed to bring people in our home. Uh, Carol and I have done more ministry around a kitchen table than than I think we ever have out of that office that is at the other end of the building. Just just to share life with people, to, to be willing to ask them questions about How are you finding God in your life? Are you struggling? Are you encouraged? How can I pray for you? How can I help you? Just the expression of care. 
This isn't just for the elders and the pastors and the ministry leaders, although they are that way. You do have, while we are sometimes better and sometimes worse at reaching out, there's a lot of families here and it's hard to get to them all, but, but we strive. I was with a, a group of women who were leading different ministries, and if you could have heard the heartbeat of these women to want to get the outliers drawn into the church, what can we do? How can we serve? These folks are, are stragglers. They're not intending to be, but how do we get them in the fabric of the church? That was their heartbeat thinking of ideas, brainstorming how that happens. So it does happen at the leadership-type levels, but it also happens member to member. That, that, you know, I, I was very encouraged. A member came to me and shared something he had been doing, which was to go through the membership list and begin praying for them name by name. That's what we do in the elder board. That's what we do in the staff meetings on Tuesday. But praying for them name by name and then just emailing and saying, hey, I prayed for you. I prayed for you, and I want you to know that. It wasn't looking for a pat on the back, looking for the mutual encouragement that we're thinking about here, about the development of spiritual growth in one, in one another. So, so you will not grow apart from this. So I would encourage you to be active in going forward to those that perhaps you're a little bit drawn away from. And then last, I would say to celebrate God for his promises here. Do you realize what he says when it's not the will of my Father that one of these should perish? This is not a pass at living with license. This is the grace to live with confidence and rest. He says the same thing in Romans, for those whom he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined he called and those he called he justified and those he justified he glorified. It's the same group. Not one leaked away. Not one strayed too far out of the reach. See the same thing in Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So we have much to celebrate. So the Christian here, acknowledge your propensity to wonder. Actively engage in the lives of those people around you. And it, it is simply saying, would you come have lunch with me? Can we have a cup of coffee? And, and, and to try to create this culture that we're speaking about, and to piggyback on what Keith said, we have this class coming up starting June 3 that Nick and I will be teaching on how do we do this? You know, how do we actually disciple one another? What's the Bible say about discipleship? And then we're going to walk out the practical implications about how we do life on life. We want to see this culture of, of this culture, not just of hospitality, but discipleship where we feel a burden to see all those around us advance forward in the things of God. So let's just take a minute now and pray about this. And if you're convicted, then, then silently confess your sins. If you're encouraged and you're hope-filled, then thank God for the grace that he's given to us through the word. But let this word transform you. Please don't, don't read this word and just think, oh, okay, I understand it better, without thinking, how am I going to do it? And, uh, and then... Elder is going to close us in prayer. Larry will close us in prayer.